words on KNBR. Are you not entertained? Is that why you are here? The Sports Leader. What is shaking? Hope everybody's having a tremendous day here in the Bay Area. I know a couple of gentlemen that are having a tremendous day in the Bay Area. That would be the co-owners of your Golden State Warriors, Joe Lacob and Peter Goober. Gentlemen, thank you for stopping by and joining the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. So what was, uh, let's all start with Peter. What was, what was this day, I mean, what was it like being out there and finally being able to come out and say, this is what we want to do and this is what's going to happen in 2017? Well, Joe, Joe was in charge of about 95%. I was only in charge of 5%. I Southern California. I brought the weather. You did? Yeah. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> the Perry usually does just about okay with that. Although, having grown up in Southern California, I do miss some of the uh, the warm summers. But California, anywhere in California isn't too bad. Well, Joe, what, I mean, well, let me ask you this. Was this something when you guys purchased a team that you had in mind? Well, not specifically this parcel. Uh, that came afterwards. But we did know when we bought the team that uh, we wanted to, by 2017, to have a new venue. And uh, we felt that, you know, we obviously, as you know, uh, play in the oldest venue in the NBA. Uh, it was remodeled in the late 90s, and, and uh, it certainly has many good elements, and we have great fans. But compared to a lot of places, if you travel around the league, and I'm sure you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, is, uh, it has room for improvement. And so, uh, you know, we knew that uh, to do to make this place uh, not only have a winning team, which is number one, we also want to have a winning organization and a great venue for us to play in for our fans to enjoy. And so, we knew we'd get into this discussion. And about really six months ago, we talked about it before then. But about six months ago, we went started going hard and fast on this and looking at all the available sites with the intention of picking a site right about now because we knew that. We need about five years to get through all the approval processes, permits, and the construction. Was San Francisco always the number one option? No, I, I don't. People like to say that mm-hmm. I know, and they'll probably continue to say that we had a plan to do that from the beginning. But I can assure you that uh, we're very open-minded. Uh, we know we have a great fan base in Oakland. We had, you know, obviously consider a lot of things here, and uh, we really looked at sites in Oakland, sites in San Francisco. We considered uh, even San Jose, um, though I admit. Not as strongly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we really wanted to see what would be the best site overall. And there's a lot of different things that go into this uh, for our team and for our fans. Was it for you guys just, I mean, the obvious? It's San Francisco. I mean, not, nothing against any city here in the, in the Bay Area, but you're talking about a world-class city here in, in the Bay. And I don't know if it's any deeper than that. You guys can tell me if it's any deeper than that. Look, I played for the Warriors. I live in the, I live in the East Bay. I love the fan base there, and I'm hoping the fan base will be able to stay the same when you guys make the move. But I get it. It's, it's San Francisco. I mean, it, do I need to look any deeper than that? <laughs> well, look, the Bay Area is a great place overall, and uh, we we really we love all parts of it, and we have fans from all parts of it. And as uh, I think we said earlier today, which I don't know that a lot of people know or knew, that is that we, 50% of our fans, Tom, come from the East Bay and 50% from the West Bay. Uh, and so it's not as if one is you know, necessarily more perfect than another. There are advantages to both. Certainly there are more sponsors and more companies on this side of the Bay. Um, you, know, you, can, you can do the, all the analysis you want. 
perhaps you could assume that free agents might be more uh, attracted to playing over in San Francisco. It certainly has brand recognition. Um, it's iconic in many respects. It's a world-class city. Um, but, you know, Oakland's a great place, too, and uh, the East Bay. And so we, um, you know, we had to look at all the aspects and look what, on a, when you put all, all down a piece of paper, what, where does it come out the best? Where does the ledger kind of finally end up? Well, take us through maybe some of that ledger. I mean, what, when, when you were, like, looking at it, pros and cons and this and that, <clears throat> what was, I mean, what tipped the scale? Well, at the end of the day, it's sort of where's the best location. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, when this particular location became available, that is uh, Pier 3032, I have to say, say, I have to admit, and I think Peter can comment on this as well, when we first saw it, we said, wow, this is amazing. At the foot of the Bay Bridge, incredible views to the water, to AT&T Park, to the downtown San Francisco skyline, um, incredible access to the Bay Bridge, to Muni, to the new Trans Bay Terminal that's going to come in in 2017. Coincidentally, the same year that we're going to finish the arena. Um, it has transportation access. It has views. And the city was very aggressive. They made us a great deal, uh, perhaps not by traditional NBA standards, where you know cities like Orlando, they pretty much go and build the arena. We knew that wasn't going to happen in California and in these cities. But uh, they did make us an aggressive offer to and work with us hard to get this done, and so at the end of the day, you know, it really became sort of the obvious choice. Peter, you used to doing things big uh, down in Hollywood. Uh, been in the movies for a long time. Great imagination. Couldn't you have like put this thing on some sort of flotation device and played half the games in Oakland and half the games and then just keep floating it back and forth? Yeah, but parking would be a problem. This is true. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to remember, we're we're so, Joe, I, and the ownership group are so basketball-centric, the Warriors, you know, that's our tribe. Uh, But when you decide to build a venue, considering the uh, uh, all the metrics of doing it and the analytics you have to examine, you have to recognize that, for the last 25 years, we played 41 games except for one year mm-hmm. a, a season. Yes, one. Right. Believe me, I remember. And so the idea is most years have 365 days. Take 41 from 365 and you got 320 days. So what are you doing those other 320 days with this valuable venue you're going to build? Without the other things, the venue is far less robust. It's often empty. It's an often not an exciting area. So you have to think of it holistically as the whole entertainment complex, too. So we looked at it and said, owning the San Francisco, greater San Francisco Bay area, which is San Jose, Oakland, and and San Francisco and the surrounding communities, we have to be the cultural icon. We have to be a lightning rod, not just a beacon, for those cultural events, for those performers both here and who are drawn here. And so we had to have a venue that would excite them, that was state-of-the-art, that had the highest quality of acoustics, the, you know, the best type of fan uh, and, and audience uh, amenities. And, you know, when you take a stadium that's, you know, that's not new in the, in the 21st century, you often have a real struggle to provide that. So we looked at it in our timeline. We said, look, in five years, our lease is up. We, this has been remodeled twice, and it's 50 years old. This is the time to really consider, you know, doing something that's going to be state of the art out five years from now, not even today, because the rate of change has changed. Mm-hmm. So that's what we looked at. We looked at how will how will the acts, how will everything from the circus and from the ice shows and from and from performing talent and conventions and the pieces that are necessary to make a place really vital, how would that work? And 
when San Francisco approached Joe and myself and the other people in the in the management group, Rick Welts and et cetera, they really answered that bell really the best. And so it was both an invitation and a solicitation, but one that truly we could refuse, we could do other things, we were other sites, but nothing held the magic that this was. This is like this is like the Sydney Opera House on the Bay. You know, you look at it and you say, I get it. You know, it's like it doesn't take a lot of imagination to get it. And then it becomes the kind of signature place that a city and a team and uh, a booking group that book book all the talent really aspire to. How do you use that imagination and try to come up with something that's going to be relevant five years from now? Because we've seen these arenas come and go yeah. and all of a sudden it's like boom, pop. It's like a car. You drive it off the lot and now you're driving a used car all of a sudden. How do you use that imagination and try to figure out, okay, this is what we're going to need, and maybe it will be out of date, but maybe it's certain things we can tweak and add on and kind of keep up with what's going on, because certainly you don't want to have something that it's like, this thing is unbelievable, then five years down the road you're thinking, we need a new one already. Well, that's that's really, Joe and I talk about this, you know, what's the life cycle of a, of a building, how long it is, and you can't measure it in the 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s or even the 90s because the life cycles were much longer. Uh, so what you do is you have to cast your line kind of over the horizon. We can't say take some risk, you know, and build a, a, a kind of venue that uh, looks to answer questions into the 21st century. And you have to really do it that way. So you ask yourself, what are those things? Well, you look at it and you say a fan starts to decide to go to a game, location-based entertainment, 4.2 days before he makes the, or she makes the decision with 3.5 people, drive 9.6 <laughs> miles, wait 21.3 minutes for the game to start, fight to get, to get the food, get the merchandise, and then drive all that system home. You look at every one of those touch points and say, how can we make them more elegant? How can we make the commitment to go to location-based entertainment more exciting, efficient, and effective in every area? And what we did and what we've, what we've been plan to do was to do the kind of thinking, the kind of forward thinking with think tanks and, and organizations that allow us to listen to the fans in all of those areas. So we look at digital. We say to ourselves, fans want to be participating. They want to, they metabolize the process. Mm -hmm. Fans actually think they make a difference in the outcome of a game. You know, they really think them being there makes a difference. And if you go to concerts or any events, fans participation, they're dancing, cheering, clapping, lights, they believe they own it through that experience. You have to provide that. You you got to you got to have a dialogue, not a monologue with them. So you think of all the elements of interactivity. You think of food, different types of food. You think of how to make it a more efficient parking, so they're not spending so much time. So that that venue and that team becomes the hero that tells the story. Yeah. Can I ask for just one thing? That's all I want is one thing. Drives me nuts when they play music during the games. When they play music during the games. That's how I'm bald. I started pulling my hair out when they started playing music during the games. Call me old school, but I always thought the exercise was to go watch the team on the court. San Antonio, for all the great stuff they do, model organization. When they play music during the game, it, it, it drives me nuts. What do you mean during the game? During, during the game, like actual no, no, actions going on. No, but wasn't timeouts. No, not timeouts. Okay. I'm talking about when oh, guys okay. are actually dribbling the ball and playing basketball. There's like a soundtrack. There's music being played hey, as the game's going on. What do you think? This is golf or something? I mean, <laughs> you have to be quiet yeah, while you really don't got to be quiet. Because I mean, geez, do you need Springsteen playing when I'm watching the game? Let me watch the game a little bit. That's all I ask. Go crazy. ACDC it up. See, I agree with that. I agree with that. When the... 
players are playing on the court. I yes. really agree with that completely. But I think in those unbelievably long TV timeouts and those unbelievably That's long fine. periods, Ed, you need to keep the emotion of the fans. You can't go up and down, up and I down. I agree. And you need music as a palate there. Rip some bad religion on them. Okay. I'm good. I'll pick out your music for <laughs> okay. you. I'll get them fired up. <laughs> All right, coming up more with Peter Goober, Joe Lacob. We'll discuss what this hopefully provides as far as the team on the court. We'll talk about that next here on the Sports Leader. You're listening to KNBR, the only place with Golden State Warriors basketball. Now back to Mr. T. It's also extraordinary to reflect upon the fact that there is an ownership group in place that is both emotionally connected to sports and understands the impact that sports has on the community. Back talking a little Warriors basketball. Peter Goober, Joe Lacob, nice enough to join me for the better part of an hour. Well, let's talk about the actual basketball team and how this, in both of your minds, is going to help the product. Because that's really where it begins and ends. I mean, you can have all the entertainment you want. You can have a great fan experience if you want. I mean, all those things are integral. But... It's really about the team and how the team's doing on the court. How do you think this helps put a better team on the court? Well, let's just make something very clear to all our fans out there. And uh, we said this at the press conference this morning. At the end of the day, our goal, Peter, myself, the ownership group, you know, everyone in the organization, at the end of the day, the thing we care about more than anything else is winning. And uh, let's just not let that get lost in the, all this discussion about arenas and dollars and support and all that. And we obviously have a job to do to turn this franchise around still. We've got work to do. We think we've made some strides. We intend to be good. Okay, we're going to do the best we can in the next few years to be the most competitive team we can. One thing we did notice this year, and it was a contributing factor, though not the final factor, and that is that in the, in the uh, pursuit of free agents this last year, it did seem to make a difference. We were told by some people not interested in playing up there because you're not in San Francisco. Tell me when you moved to San Francisco. This is before we even, we never mentioned that we were going there mm-hmm. or that we might because we hadn't decided that. But so I think free agents, clearly San Francisco does have a brand. It is an iconic city. And I think it, it it's it's probably fair to say that for some free agents, it's going to have an impact for us to be able to potentially recruit them to the city. Now, they have to play with good players. You know, it all has to fit and all mm-hmm. that. But I think it could be a factor. It could be. I mean, I think when the money's the same. I, I, I was talking to Fitz about this, and he said, as a player, what do you think players look at? And I said, well, there's two things, winning and money. And I go, if you're getting paid the same, then it usually is, well, I'd like to play for a winner. And then usually third on the list is, unless there's a big discrepancy between cities and arenas, and that's all personal preference. But one thing I do know from, you know, having played, most of the guys I play with, it's like I have 10 to 12 years to play, and I try to maximize how much I can make, and I also want to win along the way. And I think that's obviously what you guys are going for. It's like having the the best of everything, right? Having a world-class facility, having a world-class team, and then everything kind of falls into place after that. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, growing up in the Bay Area for most of my life, I mean, I've lived on the East Coast and L.A., but really for 31 years in the Bay Area, the one thing you tend to remember are the 49ers. 
uh, not this version, but the mm-hmm. older version, um, and the ownership. You know, they, there was a great love for that ownership and the way players were treated. You always heard about that. I think that kind of thing matters. Players care. I think you can probably answer this question better than us. How they're treated. You know, what kind of facilities do they have in the locker rooms? All those little things add up. I was just happy to have a job. <laughs> perfectly honest with you. <laughs> you guys want me? Sweet. Awesome. <laughs> We're practicing tomorrow. <laughs> I will definitely show up. If you could speak to the, uh, I've heard, I know you've heard this question a lot. I've heard it a lot. What happens to the blue-collar warrior fan that's been there forever and one of the best fans in the NBA? I don't think anybody will ever forget the uh, the We Believe year that was just I mean, they blew the roof off that arena, and I think a lot of that was they hadn't been to the playoffs in many years before, but I think it was a testament to what type of fan, basketball fan, lives here in the Bay Area. Very passionate, very knowledgeable, and I think having played in every arena, one of the best basketball bases in the country, do you fear losing that fan? Well, first of all, we do value our fans. We realize what we have, and we don't want to lose them in in any way, shape, manner, or form. In fact... We want to keep them. We want to add more fans, right? So we know that uh, Oakland, uh, certainly at that venue, we have drawn very, very well. Even this year, I think we're 10th in attendance. And, you know, let's face it, we didn't have a good year from a standpoint of a record. And um, that's a fact. And But, you know, our fans are loyal. They're loud. They're great. Um, we do not believe that we're going to – we may lose some. You know, you, kinda, you can't satisfy everybody. Um, the fact is that the Bay Area is separated by bridges, you know, mm-hmm. and water. And it's just the geographic nature of it. And they're people, and they're competitive, some of these communities, where they view it that way. So some people are going to be upset and, you know, based on principle alone, may not come. We may lose them. And we hope that's not the case. We're going to do every bit we can to keep them. We think we'll gain new ones. Certainly it may be easier for people. You know, I live on the peninsula and I've been a fan for 20 some odd years. And let me tell you, I have a lot of people complain to me all the time and say, all you know, all them. Can we please move the team to the West Bay because this commute is terrible? They, they complain all the time from Palo Alto. Um, they're going to be happier. People in San Francisco are going to be happier. People in Marin are going to be happier from at least that perspective. And we do believe that if you take a good hard look at it, the Bart, you know, and the bridge and where that arena is going to be located, right at the base of the bridge, uh, you know, it's really not bad. Uh, you could argue that. Certainly from Berkeley or Oakland or depending on where you're coming from, the commute is shorter, uh, certainly in terms of distance and maybe even time, than it might be getting down that 880 freeway, which is a, a tough freeway. So, you know, it, we don't want to lose them, Tom, and we hope all of you, you know, certainly stay Warrior fans. We understand that some are going to be upset based on principle, but we're going to try to keep you. Yeah, I was uh, I was eight minutes away, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> guess I'm going to have to get a jet ski. Would you say... Let me ask you about maybe some of the obstacles moving forward. I mean, I don't know if you want to put a percentage on this, that it's going to get done on this site, ironclad in 2017. Obviously, that's the that's the goal. What kind of obstacles are we still looking at to make this vision a reality? Well, the first thing is it is going to get done on this site by 2017. Mark it down. Done. It's going to get okay. done. If, if anybody has faced a challenge and is leading the charge, like Joe and myself and the group, doesn't believe that they should get off the train now. And nobody doesn't believe that in our group. You can't accomplish something with all the moving parts this thing has unless you have that unconditional convic- conviction of the result. You have to have that because there will be bumps along the way. 
so we can't tell you all the bumps, all the people that have to, you know, get in line and support it and stay inside the time frame and all that. But the, clearly that's going to be the case. The real issue is for us, the real issue is to shine the light on the problems, let people know we're not risk averse, challenge our best assumptions to get the best result and make damn well sure that everybody inside the tent is working towards that goal. Now, the second part of it is we know it's a collaboration. The people that have different views are are not our adversaries. They're peripheral opponents, but they're not our adversaries. Our adversaries is our own talent and resources and resourcefulness. That's what we got to make sure it doesn't we doesn't we don't abandon that. Because I I couldn't tell you over a five year plan or could Joe what problems we'll face, what political obstacles will occur, what personal and business enterprises might object. Or all those things. But that's natural to any undertaking. If an undertaking doesn't have some risk, it's generally not much of a reward. And this has, we think, a giant reward for everybody involved. All the fans. You know, you, you, we, we've toured. We went, just and looked at all the arenas around the country. And we saw what happens when you create a fan experience that is so robust that the fans believe not only the team is theirs, but the venue is theirs, the experience is theirs, and they become the apostles for you. They tell it forward. So I think that our commitment is is unconditional, but but not childlike. We know that there's going to be challenges, and we're prepared to confront them because we think we have the right information, the right data, and the right attitude to win. And then three years from now, you'll find out this was the natural migratory route of the Colombian salamander. And you go, what? Where'd that one come from? Oh, I didn't even know there was a Colombian salamander. All right, coming up more with Peter Coover and Joe Lacob. I want to find out what this is going to look like, what the vision is like, and maybe how to get this thing. I've mentioned the Conseco Fieldhouse before, which is just perfect for that area. It's my favorite arena in the NBA. I think it captures the spirit of Indiana and high school basketball and everything about it is just really, really cool. And I'm curious what's maybe some of the visions are of this arena and how to make it an arena that when you look at it, you say, you know what, that arena is in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Coming up more with Joe Lacob and Peter Goober right here on the Sports Leader. Back with the co-owners of the Golden State Warriors, Joe Lacob, Peter Goober. How do you guys make this thing indigenous to San Francisco? I was mentioning how much I love Conseco Fieldhouse. It wouldn't work in any other city, any other state than where it is because of their love for high school basketball. And you walk in there and they have the pom-poms on the wall and they have the framed pictures. And it just looks like a high school gym. Then all of a sudden it opens up, whoosh. It's an arena, and I, I just love that place because it fits. What do you look at around here when you're, you know, you're visualizing what we want this thing to look at, to look like? Like I had an idea. I think the arena should look like a uh, sourdough bowl, and I think that would be perfect for the city here. A and sourdough then, bowl, absolutely, a big sourdough bowl, and you look at it and go, "That's San Francisco." It's probably not going to happen. But when you guys look at that, do you say, "We just want to make this world class. We're good to go." Or do you look at it and say, you know what, we want to try to make this indigenous to the area we're in? Want to take a crack at that, Joe? I think <laughs> anybody. I think uh, no. I think both of us uh, probably have a lot of thoughts on this, and maybe we can both share some thoughts. Look, um, I'm a basketball junkie, and um, 
grew up with the Boston Garden, and, mm-hmm. and so did Peter, by the way. Right. Um, and and really travel all around, go to all the arenas. I think I may have been to every arena at this point. Um, I think this is this is this is why Peter's my partner because <laughs> he is really good <laughs> at this stuff, and I'm gonna let him mostly comment it, except for to say that we need an arena that you're right that really reflects the Bay Area, and because it's going to be in San Francisco on the waterfront, reflects that environment as well. I think that when you go to some of these places, you know, it's Canseco. Let's take Canseco. It is a terrific basketball. I mean, I love that place. I know you, you mentioned you I do, do too. yeah. It is just so much fun. The sight lines are great. Um, you feel like you're right on top of the action, and it's got all this historical whatever. I don't think, however, other than that, we want the great sight lines here too. Yeah. We want to be on top of the action. And, you know, I have a pet peeve, and everyone in our group knows this. We discuss this all the time. I don't really like hockey arenas. Because that bowl is bigger and mm-hmm. the seats are always different, the rise of the seats. And, you know, ideally speaking, and this is a business decision, but ideally speaking, you want to have a basketball arena and a concert venue as well. You know, if you, they're not going to have hockey, then don't build it for hockey. We have to make that decision, obviously. But we need to have an arena that is, got, has a certain amount of sophistication here. And if you saw some of the watercolors that went out today, mm-hmm. and they're in the paper, you look at this big glass wall. I think we kind of envision a place that it opens itself up to the beauty of the bay. People are proud of the bay. And being on San Francisco Bay, those views of the water and of AT&T Park and, and frankly, of the San Francisco skyline, we have to be sort of in that. And I think that, so it looks, I think you're going to have more of a modern-looking arena here at the end of the day. We'll have an architect that will determine all this. But... And that is somewhat of an iconic structure. We cannot build a structure here that is, you know, sort of standard run-of-the-mill arena, if you know what I mean. It's just not going to work. Peter? Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly said. You have to think of it two ways. Um, one is, on a rainy, foggy night at 60 miles an hour, you got to know where you are when you see the building. Now, there's a lot of rainy, foggy nights here, so you really have to make that work. But the point is, you really know what. If you, you go to Sydney Harbor and you see the Sydney Opera House, you know exactly where you are. You know, most of the buildings are so nestled inside the city that all the buildings are around it, and they have no signature value. So this should be some signature value for this. That's really important. So people have a sense of, as you say, an iconic location, Mm -hmm. but a really significant structure, something that really speaks to it. And what should that do? It's just my own view, not necessarily imposing it on the system. Mm -hmm. I think it should feel ecumenical. I think it should reach out into the greater San Francisco Bay community, the way it feels like, open an open uh, hands, so that it's, it's inclusive rather than exclusive. It opens itself up to the community. At the same time, it's a lightning rod to draw talent in. So you want to have some... The architecture should tell a story, should should narrate that you're at in San Francisco and what the culture of San Francisco can do. No, architects are narrators. They can do that. They can create that environment. Uh, the idea is we don't want to have... You know, all frosting and no cake. So we, we want that, we want the, the inside of the building to continue that story, to be able to be so fan friendly, so participatory, so inclusive, and yet provide an intimacy, even in a big building of yes. 16, 17, 18, 19,000, mm-hmm. an intimacy, both amongst the crowd and the players, so that you feel in the experience, not outside the experience. And that's, that's a challenge for architecture when you go to a building of that size. And then you also have one other element that's really unique. This building faces only one piece faces the inside the city. Mm-hmm. The rest is on the bay. So, you know, fewer folks see it from the, from the water side. So it has a, has to have a way, an entry. 
It has to have a first act. It has to have something that welcomes you there in terms of the environment. It tells you you're going to have fun. It's safe. It's uh, it, it's well light, lit. Uh, that all the uh, access and egress points are comfortable. So those are real challenges in today's modern cities to do that. But that is what will make the building memorable and everybody come and tour it. We went, we, for example, we went to a uh, uh, together to uh, Toronto. And they have a sports bar there in Toronto. And Larry Tannenbaum was the uh, CEO and president of, of, of the, uh, the CEO mm-hmm. of the whole uh, place there. Sports bar, you went there at four in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, when no game was going on and it was chock full. Not because just because not because it was a great sports bar, just it is, yeah. but because that whole footprint had an attitude. You wanted to be there. We would like that footprint to be in San Francisco. And actually, I think when you take, I think this is the point Joe was making before, when you take a player's talent, talent managers, their, 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 their group that makes help make the decision, and you take them to that building, it does make a statement if all things are equal. And often all things are equal, much closer than you think. When you make that statement that says how they view their, their, their vision, how they view their team, how they view that, you tend to get better talent, you tend to get better opportunities, and you tend to execute on them better. So it's important. When you weave this together... And we talked about basketball being 41 dates a year, regular season, possibility of playoffs. But there's, what, 200 and... 320. 320. Thank you. (laughs) You probably recited that before. I did. Okay. So there's more dates without basketball than with basketball. You can have concert dates. You're going to have all kinds of stuff that are going through there. How much of the inside of the building, I mean, does basketball come first when you're building this? Is it, you know what, first and foremost, this is a basketball venue, and although we're going to be doing other things, when we're looking at what we're trying to accomplish here, we're looking at the seating and the sidelines and structure, we're thinking about basketball first and then trying to fit everything fit everything else in. That is a great question. And we're we're going to be talking about this more and more and more as we get down to the details, but... Yes, is the answer. Basketball comes first. Golden State Warriors, this is going to be the home of the Warriors. We want this to be a significant home court advantage. We want to build one of the great basketball viewing experiences in the world. I mean, we have one chance to do this, and we might as well make it a great one. Intimate. Intimacy, very, very important. We want to feel like you're on that court. We want to create an energy. You know, we have one of the greatest fan bases. You said it earlier. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable fan base. They're loud. You go to any other arena, and I don't know if that's the building or it's the fans. You know, you have to ask that question sometimes, but it is definitely loud in Oakland. We want to have this be loud. We want this to be exciting. We want this to have a, a, you want to go there to be part of the experience because that's what this is really all about. So that is very, very important. Now, you mentioned Staples Center. Staples Center is built to house a lot of different events. It's very multifaceted. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a moneymaker. So from the business side, you know, we have to think, we have to make sure we can host, you know, um, you know, the circus. We have to make sure we can do a good job in concerts. And that's really important in San Francisco. This would be a great concert venue. So we, we have to prioritize. But basketball is going to come first. Concerts are going to come second. And work your way down from there is the way I would answer that question. And, Tom, I'll tell you, we're both from Boston. So we're going to do something very special. <laughs> we're, when we put the floor down, we're going to know where all the soft spots are. But unlike in Boston... <laughs> I wish they would have told me. In Bo- <laughs> unlike Boston... We're going to make them not permanent, so we're going to move them around for games. Well, you better tell your home players that. Because <laughs> believe me, I hit a couple of those, and I was like, where'd the ball go? <laughs> it's supposed to come up right there. Well, you know, another thing they did in Boston that was 
a home court advantage was they used the thick nets. And I don't know if in the NBA now everyone has to have the same net, but if you go back and watch some of the, the old tapes, they had thick nets, so ball goes through, you can't grab it out real quick and go. It gets stuck in the net a little bit, and you're waiting for it, and come on, get out of the net, and by that time they're back on defense. Yeah, you go back. Did and not look. know that. Yep, yeah, it was a different. It was a different net. I told Bird one time. I go, why don't you guys just put chain nets up there for crying out loud? I mean, the ball's like swirling around, waiting for it to come out. I mean, it was ridiculous. But I think that's when you think Staples intimacy would not be the not the first word, but not even the one thousandth word that came out of your mouth because it's just not. It's not intimate, and that's one of the things that I do love about Conseco. I loved about Matt Court up in Oregon when we played up there when I was at Arizona. Phenomenal facility. It was a great facility. It was old, but they you know, kind of had the, uh, kind of like Boston Garden used to. You know, you had that second deck that almost felt like it was on top of Very the vertical. Court. They were right on top of you, yeah. and I think the crowd did make a difference. Do you guys think, too, when you're looking at I mean, how many times have you looked and thought and written something down? Yeah, I don't want that. I don't want that. Because you get, they get one shot at this. It's not like after you build the whole thing, it's, yeah, we don't like that. Let's go back in and do it over again. No, and there's a lot of different opinions about, you know, what's the right way to do it. And someone has to make those calls. I'm guessing it'll be you two. Uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. But we're going to... A lot of input. To, yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of input, not only from, you know, the people we work with, the architects, and so on, but also from community. You know, we are very much, I think Peter can talk about that a little bit, but we have plans to really listen uh, to suggestions from our fans. And uh, we're going we're gonna to have a whole process with respect to that. But, you know, I, I think it's very, very important that we, at the end of the day, if you saw the designs that we're working on so far, mm-hmm. we're not ready to release those yet. We're really favoring intimacy. Yeah. We're favoring, we're going to try to, it, it has to be a certain size. If you want to get NCAA regionals, you have to have a certain size, okay. and we'd like to do that. But having said that, we want to try to make this an, int- everything we can do, all the modern tricks of the day, to make this an intimate you know, really fun experience, really exciting and energetic experience. Well, take all the arm bars out. Make it one big couch each row. That'll make it intimate. <laughs> well, well, actually, Maybe sitting an, on top of each other. There's actually another another interesting uh, kind of arcane point, and it's not necessarily we're on cusp on this. This is not something we're doing, but you can really look at it and say, you know, in most instances, a 14,000-seat uh, arena for basketball would probably be the optimum best size. The problem is you wouldn't get any, any major music acts to go into the arena. You, no. They want nineteen, twenty thousand 20,000 seats. So you're always balancing some elements. So you can't, you, you, you're going to make some kinds of compromises to make it all work. But the trick is, I think the real trick is, is that people walk out and speak to their experience there. We did some very preliminary studies. You know, when women go to games, you know what's really important to them? The ladies' room. I know it sounds really funny. But the, the women's rooms are really important to them. I thought How? you were going to say short size of the players. No, not the short size. <laughs> Can we work on that hem? Move that up a little bit? Good. I want season tickets. But seriously, Thank that's you. The, you, you have to realize people don't go one single people do not go to the game very much. I mean, not one person all alone. Mm-hmm. They go in groups, herds. And people can influence other people. And with families, moms influence kids. And you need these kids as fans. They're, they're, they promote going to the game. So you have to think of the whole familial element in it too. And if it's not fan friendly, family friendly, it's a it's a challenge. Couple uh, last things. I know we're uh, right up against it, and you guys got to head out as well. Will the name Golden State Warriors stay? Well, as we answered today, um, the name of the team is the Golden State Warriors, and we intend for it to remain the Golden State Warriors. There's no plan to change it at this time. 
We're not going to sit here and, and you know make a claim that it'll forever be that way, but it's, it could be forever. Mm-hmm. It really, at the end of the day, we can sit here and talk about this. At the end of the day, it's going to be what the fans of the Golden State Warriors, the, you know, this is, this is their community asset as well as ours. It's what they want it to be. And so you know, we're going to have to determine a process to figure that out at some point if, if there's pressure to change it. But right now, we have no plans to change it. Before I let you go, obviously this is a, I mean, it's a big day here in the Bay Area, but the next biggest day will be to see if you guys can keep your draft pick at number seven. Who gets to go back for the lottery process and then they bring in any sort of lucky charm? And if they <laughs> lose, will you tell them to stay in Secaucus? Well, that's a penalty having to stay in Secaucus. Oof. It's not going to be in Secaucus this year. It's not? No. No, it's in New York. Well, then actually. I wouldn't go to Secaucus then. No, it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't help to go to Secaucus. Why would I go there? <laughs> <laughs> no, Peter and I are both going. Okay. Bob Myers will be the guy. Uh, he's our new lucky charm. Okay, there you go. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, he'll be up on the dais, and we will be there rooting him on. And, uh, you know, every kind of lucky charm you can think of, we're going to be have with us in our pockets. And we said to him, here's the message. Don't come home without it. <laughs> now is there any truth to the rumor that the uh that his this contract comes up the day after the lottery <laughs> no, okay, no i'm just kidding <laughs> but there is a very interesting thing we saw him playing a lot of ping pong the last few weeks <laughs> <laughs> hey guys really appreciate the time joe peter is uh nice to meet you and this is like i said we we're talking about this last week a little bit and I just think it's a great. I think it's a great thing. I mean, there's a part of me having played there and you know living in the East Bay for 22 years now that I will miss the I will miss the team over there. Uh, and part of you thinks, well, everybody's kind of leaving the the Oakland Bay area. I have no idea how that's going to work itself out. But I think this is going to be something that will be special. Uh, everybody will be able to enjoy this. It's going to be in a world class city and. Now all we need is a world-class team to go along with and get a team that's perennial playoff contenders and get there and maybe uh, do something that hasn't been done here since 1975. So best of luck with everything, and maybe we'll be talking to you guys around lottery time and keep the fingers crossed. Thank you very much for having us. Joe, thanks a lot. Peter? Thanks a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right.